Today's reading is Luke 8, 22 to 28. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, master, master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the ragey waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith, he asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water when they obey him. They sailed to the region of Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Keen's Quest students, first through fourth graders, you can head the lobby and find your teachers. The rest of you may be seated. Thank you. I, uh, I feel like I have coined a new phrase recently. I'm gonna submit it to Wikipedia or something. When people ask me how I'm doing, I respond with this completely nebulous and vague phrase, oh, I'm just living the ministry dream, right? <laughs> there are perpetual ebbs and flows and ups and downs and roundabouts and hills and swings in ministry specifically. Um, there's no such thing, it seems, as settled. Every time you think you've landed somewhere, all of a sudden, you know, something happens and it just keeps going up and down and up and down. And I think I've finally realized after being in ministry here for 20 years that the goal is not to arrive at a settled place, but the goal is learning to keep my equilibrium by focusing on Jesus in all of this ebbs and flows and specifically in chaos. Um, I wanna give you a quick example of something. I wanna do a quick experiment. Can I get a volunteer, please? Faye, come here, you just did a great job reading scripture. Um, <laughs> Faye's gonna be my example for the morning. It's very simple. I'm not, gonna, I'm not even gonna touch it. It's like a science experiment. Can you balance on one leg? All right, now will you close your eyes and keep balancing on one leg? When we stand on one leg with our eyes open, we can use apparently the information from our eyes as well as other systems to help keep us balanced. But as you'll start to see, once you close your eyes, you've removed the primary sources of information and apparently it's a bit more difficult to balance with your eyes closed. Faye is leaning ever so slightly over to one side. You're supposed to keep them closed for the whole time. And I did this with my kids at home and all three of them promptly fell over. So I was like, well, this will surely work. All right, are you, are you falling? Kindly. A wee bit, yeah. All right, thank you for your, for your example this morning. I toyed with the idea of doing it myself, but then I was like, this could go horribly wrong and I'd, I'd be off the edge of the stage. Today we're going to be looking at two stories that reveal how people responded to disorder and chaos. Quite often when we get into moments of chaos, we go like this, right? We sort of, we panic and we cover our eyes. But as that exercise was supposed to reveal, um, we actually lose our balance, our equilibrium if we're not focused on something or someone in the midst of the storms that we encounter in life. So let me pray together and then we're gonna open up our text for this morning. 
Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open my lips to declare forth your truth, and I pray that you would burn away anything that is not of you, um, that will not take root or even fall on our ears this morning. So we open our ears, we open our hearts to receive what it is that you might want to say this morning to us. Amen. All right, the first storm that we see in today's text is a storm that takes place on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and about seven miles wide. It's quite big. You certainly can't see from one side to the other. And in this first slide I'm going to show you, you'll see, you can kind of see that the, the Sea of Galilee is surrounded by mountains and hills up to about 2,500 feet all around it. And there's steep cliffs on the east side called the Golan Heights. Um, in this next slide, which is a topographical, topographical slice, I suppose, you'll see that all the way to the north is Mount Hermon. That is a really tall mountain. It's much taller than Big Bear, just to give you kind of some perspective. And you'll notice that the Sea of Galilee, if I had one of those laser pointers, I'd show you. The Sea of Galilee is the sea over here to the right side. It's about 700 feet below sea level. So what that means is, if and when a cold wind comes over the top of these mountains and cold air drops because it's heavier than the warm air that's rising up off of the lake, a violent storm very quickly ensues when the cold air and the hot air meet, right? And waves can get up to about 10 feet high. And this is not just like a biblical time thing. This still happens today. Storms can erupt really, really fast on the Sea of Galilee. It's very, very common. So let's look at our text. Um, in your Bibles, the blue Bible's under your seat. This is on page 865. We're going to be in Luke chapter 8. I'm going to start reading at verse 22. It says, One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Let's stop right there. Some of the people in this boat are seasoned fishermen. This must have been a really bad storm. They've sailed this lake before. They're very familiar with the Sea of Galilee, but it must have been a really bad storm if they honestly thought they were going to drown. And what do they do in this moment? They panic. Bear in mind that by this point, these disciples have already seen a number of miracles, right? In the previous four chapters that we've been in, we've been in the book of Luke since the beginning of this year. In the previous four chapters since Jesus started his public ministry, he has driven out an evil spirit. He has healed many, it says. He's healed a leper. He cured a paralytic. He healed a centurion's son. He raised the widow's son from the dead. Surely that's enough for these disciples to have built some trust, some faith that this Jesus guy that they're following has some unusual power or authority and clearly knows how to take care of business. I like to think that I'd be like, yeah, this, this guy, I feel fairly safe around this guy. But here a storm kicks in and these disciples abandon all the spiritual knowledge all the faith that they've acquired up to this point, and they immediately turn to, we're all going to die. One of the other gospel writers, Mark, uh, writes an account of this exact same story, actually. And he's, in his account, the disciples' tone is actually a little bit accusatory. They say to Jesus, don't you care that we're going to drown? 
So even though these disciples have some sense of who Jesus is and what he does, because they've been following him for at least like the last three chapters, however long that is, they still in this moment revert to unbelief and fear. Let's look at the chaos that's depicted in our second story that we heard a bit of this morning. We're going to read, we're picking up in verse 26. It says, They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. And when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High? The Gerasenes here is Gentile territory. This is Jesus' first foray and extension of his kingdom into to the Gentile people. And Gentiles are basically um, anybody who's not Jewish, right? They're not God's chosen people. They're not religious. They are not looking and waiting for a Messiah in the same way that most of the Jewish people that Jesus has encountered up to this point have been waiting for a Messiah. And Luke is painting a picture of a very unclean situation that Jesus is stepping into here. The man that Jesus encounters is full of demons, not just one, full of demons. He is yelling at the top of his voice, as the NIV translation says. He parades around naked. He lives among graves. And bear in mind, dead bodies are a source of uh, uncleanness in Jewish terms. And there are at least 2,000 pigs in this scene. According to Mark, Mark's account actually counts more than 2,000 pigs. Pigs are not kosher. They are not cool with the Jews, right? All of these things are considered sources of impurity for the Jews that are getting out of this boat. And Jesus is stepping into an unwelcoming and fairly chaotic scene. So this guy comes straight up to Jesus and says, what do you want with me? It's interesting to me that he doesn't go and hide. Think of the biblical image of darkness hiding from light. And it seems like Jesus frequently attracts these types of people, specifically demons. One author I read suggested that it's maybe something like magnets attracting opposing forces. Um, Charles Spurgeon, who was a prolific 19th century preacher, he suggested that the reason why we see so much demonic activity around Jesus and his ministry is because Satan never has anything new of his own to offer. So everything he does is like a, a counterfeit of what God has done or God is doing. So when God himself became incarnate and dwelt on earth in the form of Jesus, Satan would have been motivated to attempt the same thing, hence this massive increase in demonic activity. There might be something to that. We have no idea why this guy in our story this morning has been plagued by these demons. My assumption is that at some point he opened himself up to this, right? In the same way that God does not force himself upon people unless he's invited to, I think there has to be uh, an openness, like literally a pursuit of, of dark things in order to get to the point where you become like this man. And we often read a text like this and we either completely write it off because we don't sort of understand it or we go to the other extreme and we have fear and we sort of, you know, everything that's moving and living is, is potentially a demonic activity. Let's just assume that what we're reading here is true and not try to explain away what demon possession might mean or look like in today's terms. But for this particular man... What it looks like is 
the distortion and destruction of his divine likeness. At some point, this guy was a cute little baby, somebody's son. He gurgled and he cooed and he probably sang the first century equivalent of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. But now, this man is naked and he's deranged, he's dirty, he's isolated, and frankly, he comes off pretty terrifying, right? That is not who he was created to be in God's image. And I wonder how many people we encounter on a daily basis who are not living into who they're supposed to be in God's image. And we move away from them because of fear of contamination or even just the messiness of it all. Jesus does not move away. Jesus moves fearlessly towards people. So the first big takeaway from our two stories is this. There will be chaos. Following Jesus does not mean that it's all peaches and cream, right? Here, following Jesus means sailing straight into a life-threatening storm and then heading straight into the arms of a demon-possessed crazy guy. But without storms or trials or travails or chaos or disorder, whatever you want to call it, we would not grow to be who we're supposed to become. Author Kent Hughes in his commentary on Luke says this, without adversity, we would be insufferably self-centered, proud, flat-dimensional, empty people. Peter, the disciple Peter, who was in this boat, goes on to write many years later in his book, First Peter. He says, do not be surprised at the painful trials you are suffering. And he says, trials have come so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor. Romans 5 says, we can rejoice. We can rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation, and this hope will not lead to disappointment. So this all leads me to the age-old question, does God cause trials to happen, or does he allow them to happen? Did this storm happen at God's behest so that Jesus could teach his lesson and show his power? Or did it occur as a natural consequence of geography and time and season, and then Jesus stepped in as Lord over it? Are life storms caused by God, or are they sometimes caused by people's choices and actions, and then Jesus uses that opportunity to wade in and demonstrate his lordship because he's invited to or called upon in that moment? Well, trials can fall upon us because we live in a world with sinners, and we are sinners. We are people who create circumstances by our actions that might lead to somewhat of a trial. But listen, if I get angry and I try to punch somebody, but they punch me back and they knock out my four front teeth, and that leads to endless years of dental surgery that costs a lot of money and is really, really painful, I'm not sure how much I can blame God for being the cause of my suffering in that instance, right? So does God allow trials to happen and let us go through? Does he let us go through suffering? Does he lead us to go through suffering? Well, look at verse 22 again. It says, 
Jesus said, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Jesus knew what was going to happen, and yet he allowed it. He actually led the disciples right into the eye of the storm, as it were. The disciples weren't in sin in this moment. They weren't out of alignment with God's will. They were actually literally in the center of God's will. They were following Jesus. They were traveling with him from one scene of incredible ministry and miraculous ministry to another. Yet they still find themselves in a life-threatening situation. But the key is, Jesus went with them. So what's the purpose then? Well, the purpose was to test and thereby strengthen and grow their faith. Hence, I think Jesus' response, where is your faith? Let's look at what Jesus does about the chaos really quickly. Verse 24, it says, Jesus rebuked or commanded the wind and the waves. This is actually the same word that was used in the exorcism back in Luke chapter four, where he tells the demon, be quiet. He says the same thing to the wind and the waves here. And with the demoniac, if you look at verse 32, it says, Jesus sent out the demons. Jesus is undoing Satan's work by commanding the demons out of the man and then restoring this man to wholeness. Verse 35, we see him clothed and in his right mind, sitting calmly at Jesus' feet. In both these cases, with just a word, Jesus brings calm into the chaos. We see a calmed storm, and we see a calmed man. Let's look at the two distinctly different responses to the restoration that Jesus brings to this man. The first is the man's response. In verse 35, it shows us that he is saved to recognizing Jesus. He's sitting at Jesus' feet in a posture of, I think, both learning and appreciation. He's clothed. He's no longer naked and exposed, which sounds to me like a hark back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve, once they had sinned, they realized they were naked and that led to them experiencing shame for the first time. And God in his kindness physically clothed them in that moment. The man is right-minded, which leads him to sit at Jesus' feet in worship. And this actually all leads to the man being the first missionary He wants to follow Jesus. He wants to join the disciples and go follow Jesus. But Jesus ends up sending him in verse 39. He says, tells him to return home and declare how much God has done for you. And the man does. He he went and told all over town. He's literally sent out on mission before Jesus' actual disciples are sent out on mission. So the first response we see here is worship, which leads to mission. The second very different response is that of the onlookers, the townspeople here who heard about it. And in verse 37, it tells us that they were afraid and they asked Jesus to go away. Why? Well, Jesus' very presence, his actions suggest that if Jesus is on the scene, there's no more business as usual. Literally, he disrupts their business, their livelihood by allowing the demons to go into a herd of pigs that immediately rush the lake and drown themselves. The people who owned these pigs just lost a lot of income in that bacon to the point where they miss, they actually miss the incredible restoration miracle that Jesus has just turned this man's entire life upside down. But they are so focused on their economic disruption 
they valued the pigs over the man. Which begs an odd question to ask, but like, what are, what are our pigs? Is there anything that we value or would want to hold on to so much that we would effectively turn Jesus away and miss seeing what he's done and celebrating it because it feels like it's somewhat at our expense. Let's look at the disciples' response to Jesus when he calms the storm. Back in verse 25, we do see the disciples' faith growing as a result of this. Their final response ends up being, who is this? He commands even the wind and the waves and they obey him. Which means they're realizing maybe for the first time, that Jesus is God. No one has harnessed control of nature, right? Even doctors can help a little bit with the the course of certain illnesses, but literally no one touches nature. The Old Testament, the Psalms especially, are full of descriptions of God being Lord over the weather and the oceans in particular, actually. We're gonna just skip through a whole bunch of Psalms right now. I'm gonna show you some of those examples. Um, David, if I can see Psalm 65, there it is. Oh God, oh God who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Psalm 89 says, you rule, God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 104 says, he set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved You covered it with the deep as with a garment, and the waters stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. That word rebuke, that's the same word that Jesus is using here in our passage today. Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. You notice the voice of the reference to the voice of Jesus over the waters as well. And then Psalm 107, this one's quite long. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. Listen to this psalm in context of the storm that we've been looking at this morning. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. The waves mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end, like the disciples. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. That sounds like an exact prediction of the story in Luke that we're looking at today. Throughout scripture, All water has flowed and ceased to flow at God's command. The Sea of Galilee being still in this moment means that Jesus is God. He is the creator. And the disciples go, wow, who is this guy? He really is the son of God. It almost sounds worshipful the way that they say it. Their short trial, their experience of this storm leads them into a deeper, much more profound understanding of who Jesus is. And maybe it helped grow the kind of faith that we find in that familiar Psalm 23 that says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the worst possible place I could go, I will not fear because you are with me. You are by my side. 
Some of you might be familiar with this story. Horatio Spafford was a, a very successful and wealthy attorney uh, in Chicago in the 19th century, but he lost most of his fortune and wealth in, that he had in real estate in the Great Fire of Chicago in 1871. And around the same time, he actually lost his only son, who was four. He died from scarlet fever. And so Horatio understandably drowned his grief and work uh, his grief in his work, and a couple of years later, he realized that he needed um, kind of some rest and some time to process that. So he decided to take the rest of his family, which was his wife and his four daughters, um, to England, uh, to Europe. And so right when they were going to leave, he got detained by some urgent work, but he sent his wife and his daughters on ahead of him on the boat, and then he was to follow later. Their ship uh, was hit by another vessel, and it sank within two hours. And about a week later, he got a telegram from his wife, and it only had two words on it. It said, saved alone. The four daughters all died on the boat when it went down. So he immediately got on another boat to go to his wife. And on the way there, the captain of this ship showed him exactly where the, the first vessel had gone down. And somehow that man was able, in that very moment, to write the following words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, and when sorrow, like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well. It is well with my soul. And I've always been struck, actually, by the second verse of that hymn, because he turns his attention entirely to the cross and to Jesus. It kind of actually sticks out to me every time we sing it. The second verse says... My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. He's writing this at the spot where his family had perished. Even in his terrible loss and suffering, his eyes were so firmly fixed on Jesus and on his salvation that he did not get drowned in his grief and his sorrow. Many of us are in a season of chaos right now. And if you're not, you probably just got out of one or you're probably about to head into one. And our response can be, I'm gonna die, right? Get me out of here. Or our response can be, all right, Jesus, I'll face this storm. I'll face this chaos as long as you are with me. And I'm going to expect that my faith will be strengthened by it, and that in the end, I will worship, and I will see you more clearly and more fully, and I will be able to then go and tell others how much God has done for me. My prayer is that that would be our response this morning. And we're going to respond in a few different ways. If you are going through a season of chaos right now, we absolutely want to pray with you in that. That is part of what it means to be a family, that we can help carry one another in such times. And I wanna kinda boldly pray uh, kinda more specifically today as well. Last Sunday night at the, uh, the prayer and worship time, somebody had a, a word. Um, they had a picture of like, two bullies, the two bullies of Grace Church being depression and anxiety. 
And I think it's interesting that the word bully was associated with that because what do bullies do? Bullies um, intimidate and silence. Bullies cause the person who's being bullied to not be able to be, live fully into who they're supposed to be. And so the other sort of image I have with that is depression and anxiety both are, are ways that I think our eyes are taken off of Jesus. Depression, we tend to sort of be inward focused and anxiety, we tend to kind of be panicking and looking all around. So I've been praying this all week, but I, I really do want to boldly um, pray specifically for people in those two places today. And I am going to be asking if you would, if that applies to you, and if you want to be prayed for in that this morning, I'm going to ask in a moment for you to stand. And I know your hearts are beating right now. Um, I believe that the Holy Spirit, the Pentecost Holy Spirit that we have been celebrating this morning has come to break people free from prisons. And these are categories of prisons, to break people from the chains that would inhibit them from living fully into who they're supposed to be in God. So I also would like to invite you, if you feel like you're in a season of chaos, we really want to pray over that too. So um, kind of maybe with heads bowed, so this doesn't feel maybe as public as it is, if you feel like you're in that camp of depression or anxiety or in a season of chaos, I want to invite you to stand and I am going to ask that people around you would not just reach out an arm, because that can be pretty distant, but actually come around you. So prayer team, staff, elders, you might want to look around right now and make your way around this room. So everybody standing should have some people surrounding them right now with hands on, because we are going to pray that the Holy Spirit would do something bold, Let's make sure that everybody, there's some people at the back that need some people around them. So let's lay our hands. Let's be family in this moment. Yeah, take a look around. There might be some other, feel free to move around the building if you want to get up and, and go pray for somebody. Jesus, I want to ask that you would speak your word of peace. I want to ask that you would rebuke depression, that you would rebuke anxiety, that you would rebuke the, the wind and the waves of chaos that are chaining people and keeping them uh, down, keeping them in fear, keeping them from fully moving into who you want them to be. So I ask that you would speak your word this morning and that peace would reign. That you would break off chains that are holding necks down. That you would be the lifter of our eyes, the lifter of our heads. You would replace the, the kind of the hoods, the, the, the hoods of black cloaks that cause us from not even being able to see around us. And you would replace it with robes of righteousness and a crown that is light to wear. Pray that those with anxiety would feel 
almost like a weighted blanket of your peace and trust in you coming on them right now. Jesus, when you left your disciples, you, you breathed on them and you said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do not be troubled and don't be afraid. Jesus, you spoke those words when you promised the Holy Spirit to your disciples and you have breathed your Holy Spirit on us and we wanna receive that again this morning. May we receive your peace and may it not just be a one-time thing, Lord. Keep, keep, the, keep the chaos at bay. Speak your word of peace over your people this morning. Speak your freedom, speak your light, speak your life. May this church be unleashed to declare the good news of who you are and what you have done because you are breaking chains off this morning that have kept us down for too long. Lift our eyes, lift our heads unto you. Keep our eyes firmly focused on you. Lock eyes with us, Lord. Help us know that we can wade through these trials. We can wade through suffering because you are with us. You have promised that and you will not leave us. You will not forsake us. Our hope is built on nothing less than you and your righteousness and your words that you have spoken, your truth. So we stand firmly on that truth this morning, God. Unleash yourself upon us again, I pray. Amen. We wanna continue in this posture of prayer. It's not over. So if you wanna pray with the person that you're with, I'm gonna invite the whole congregation to stand now. If you also wanna continue praying, our prayer ministry team will be over here on the walls on either side. I'd love the prayer ministry people to be there and just be ready to receive anybody to pray into seasons of chaos, storms, those kinds of things. Don't leave this place today if you feel like there's something that you wanna pray with somebody. And then we'll continue in our worship.